So today's guest on the Keelon Yoga podcast is Andrea Pennington. Before we start, as usual, if this episode interests you in any way, don't forget to comment as well as head on over to YouTube channel at Keelon Yoga to see the video version and keep up to date with all our interviews. We're constantly adding new content. So today's guest, a medical doctor born and brought up in the US and now living in the south of France, actually just down the road from us here in Marseille, she's living in Saint-Tropez. Andrea's story is remarkable, an extraordinarily high achiever. She completed her medical degree and then went on with her mother, who is also a doctor, to open centres treating addiction with a mix of allopathic and alternative treatments. It's really interesting. Then at some point she got into TV presenting as a health-based TV consultant, um, shows for, uh, for the Discovery Channel, as well as appearing numerous times as the medical consultant on the Oprah Winfrey Show. However, having suffered from what she calls a high-functioning depression from a young age, in the end something gave. And this really happened after an evening of spontaneous performance, singing, she's also a talented musician actually, to an audience whilst on holiday in Saint-Tropez. And faced with the prospect of returning home to continue in TV in the US, in her hotel room she went through a kind of pivotal experience, first defined by despair in her situation, which gradually opened up to giving her literally, actually, a vision of a new beginning here in France. So she packed up and moved over, over 10 years ago now, to the south of France, and hasn't looked back. She now works combining her medical knowledge with her later trainings in holistic therapies, yoga and meditation, in order to help people not only recover from anxiety, depression and burnout, but also to access the highest creative potential, something she's really passionate about, to have the courage and confidence defining their way back to life and realigning with their true calling in it. So, without further ado, welcome Angia to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. Really nice to have you. Right, so welcome Dr. Andrea Pennington. It's wonderful to see you. Um, and I don't really know where to start. You've done so much with your life. Um, but um, I suppose, I mean, my wife asked me yesterday, what are you a doctor of? Because most people are doctors. And they, you know, you kind of assume, that, you know, but you are actually a medical doctor as well as everything else. You know, so um, do you want to just walk, walk me through your, you know, your training and your early years before you came into the current incarnation that you are now? <laughs> yes, yeah. there have been multiple yes, the, incarnations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I started off as a performing artist as a child all the way through university. And at, in my university years, because my mother was also a physician, I kind of wanted to follow in her footsteps. So I did pre-med. Um, I went to medical school in the United States. And my first, first career in medicine was pediatrics. And then I quickly shifted to adult medicine when I started treating eating disorders and addiction. And then I got certified in age management and hormone optimization and did that for several years and then started seeing that the same challenges around addiction and eating disorders were coming up with like major superstars and executives who went into burnout. And that led me to really focus on trauma recovery and self-love, which is where I'm focused now. And uh, yeah, it's been a very windy road, uh, including now I'm doing psychedelic assisted therapy and so many things. Yeah. 
It's wonderful. Um, to be honest, it was coming into the path of psychedelics with MDMA and then ayahuasca for myself, for my own healing journey. Uh, I kept it private for, for several years. But as I have progressed in my journeys um, and after sitting with psilocybin or magic mushrooms, I really got a strong calling to, to facilitate healing with other people, <laughs> especially people in the BIPOC community. Yeah, we used to do that when we were young, but in a less, <laughs> in a less structured way, I think. <laughs> so I suppose the obvious question is what led you, first of all, to break away from medicine? And um, yeah, and, and when you said you've, I mean, there's this real schism I, I noticed with you or with creativity and a, like a steady scientific job background career. And, and I think that comes from your upbringing and uh, you mentioned many times in other podcasts and episodes chats with people your father uh, and his ideas about you know creativity and and money earning etc so maybe just speak on that for a second yeah so i i basically have lived two parallel lives in this one body um i think i naturally am a performer and a teacher i love it my mother fortunately encouraged that. Um, I was playing piano. She always came to my events and recitals. But my father, as you mentioned, was very heavy on education. And he felt like the safe route for his children was to focus on education and not the arts. Now, to his credit, he had grown up in Tennessee, lived in uh, Reno, Nevada, and seen a lot of big acts come into town. And he realized that to make it in entertainment, it's like one in a million. So, you know, he was a, a young father. He wanted to keep us safe. So he pushed us towards education. And for me, I know that I have always been an artist. So I was able to do that alongside with pre-med as long as my grades were good, which created a whole sense of perfectionism that we'll talk about another time. But yeah, he had a, a strong influence in that. And Early in my, my career, I felt like I had to focus on medicine. And of course, I, I did when I got to medical school. It was really hard and really competitive. But I started noticing that every time I wanted to do something creative, I would have this like internal fear, like, no, that's not safe. And it really created, like you said, a schism. There was this sense of warfare going on internally, you know, my soul wanting to just express and, and explore. And then this this ego that's like, no, we need to stay safe. Mm. But he was actually uh, a performer himself, wasn't he? A musician, you know, like a talented. So he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't interested in the arts and, and creativeness. So you have that in your background. Um, yeah, which is interesting. I mean, and what happened at the university? You, you know, you mentioned the perfectionism. You mentioned, I mean, I, I liked the joke about the degrees and the thermometer. Um, <laughs> she's got more degrees than a the thermometer. Um, you know, you, you are like an, an incredible achiever. But at a point in university, I think that, you know, it started to all catch up with you. Yeah, it's it, not university. Actually, when I was in med Sorry, school, yeah, you're training. It, yeah, it really, yeah, yeah. It really got to me. Because, um, yeah, it's different in the UK, the way university and med school they go together mind, right? yeah yeah you do part yes. of it yeah, yeah 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 for us in america you do four years university and then you go to specialty school so it was that it was that for me when i got to medical school and i was just sort of a one-track mind only focused on my studies i started to feel you know depression and it's interesting because even though i was 
originally prescribed antidepressant medications, the doctor who prescribed them remembered me from my interviews when I did my med school interviews. And she was like, wait a minute, aren't you, aren't you the one that has like classical piano in your background? How often are you playing piano? And I was like, I'm not playing piano at all. All I can do is study. And she was like, well, why don't you play for like 30 minutes a day? And even that I was like, what? I can't do 30 minutes a day. She's like, okay, 30 minutes a week. And I wish I had caught on then to understand that for me, my greatest antidepressant is music, it's exploration, it's expression. But it was after um, I completed medical school, I was working for Discovery Channel, I was doing a lot of creative things. But then the next piece of me that came forward was this spiritual seeker and teacher. And I was discovering that there was a lot of information coming out, like major NIH studies about mindfulness meditation, helping with pain, addiction, you know, heart problems. And at the time, as the medical director at Discovery Health Channel, I was hosting the news and documentaries. And I wanted to bring over this information, but they were not ready. No. They were way too mm -hmm. conservative. And for me, I felt like, you know, I'm on television all around America. And if I can't tell people the whole truth, it was creating, again, this sense of angst and, and frustration within me. Because one of my highest values is integrity. You know, it's, it's wholeness, it's alignment. So, so that's when I really started to feel like, okay, I'm not being true to myself and I'm not being true in my expression. And that created a lot of anxiety. Mm, mm. And you, I mean, and this was after you were working in trauma units, right? So, well, at that point, yes, I had just started um, the wellness center with my mom and I wasn't working in, in like trauma as in car accident trauma. I was working in emotional trauma. Um, and in our wellness center, we were helping people with, with addiction and eating disorders. And, and many of them did have, you know, trauma, significant traumas in their mm, background. Mm -mm. And I mean, and you, did you feel that the medicine was lacking in its approach or I mean, how did it, how did, I suppose what I'm trying to say is how did you shift out of medicine towards your current, you know, your current incarnation and what was, what's good in, what's good in the medicine that you use now and what's, you know, and what have you brought to it or amended? Well, there, the shift, I'm sorry, I didn't follow your train of thought originally, but the shift came for me in my fourth year of medical school. My mother, as I mentioned, was already a physician, and she was learning acupuncture for drug and alcohol detox as part of her work as the medical director for the Georgia Mental Health Institute. So she was telling me on the phone that people were detoxing, I mean, like from opioids, from cocaine, like serious stuff with just these little ear acupuncture needles. Incredible, incredible. And I was like, that's not possible, mom. Wow. Like I had mm. just done my psych yeah. rotation. Yeah. I'd yeah. seen people. And I mean, you know, we've all seen the movies. People are a mess. Oh, yeah. yeah physiologically. Yeah, yeah. I was a nurse for a while. Withdrawing. Yeah. So I could, I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not uh, no, pretty. You, they're so the this... worst. They, 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 you know, of any, you think they're dying. You say, what's wrong with this person? You come in and they say, oh, they're just detoxing. You think, oh, you think they're on their last legs, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So to hear that my mother was detoxing patients as outpatients, they weren't even in the hospital, they weren't hooked up to an IV. And I, I got home and visited her and I said, okay, I want you to give me the same treatment. I wasn't addicted to drugs or anything, but I was curious. And I had, you'll appreciate this as a yogi, I had that same rush 
of this kundalini, this flush on my face and tears just streaming down my cheeks. And I was like, what is this? So in my fourth year of medical school, I convinced the dean to let me go to New York and study with Dr. Michael Smith, who at the time was a pioneer in bringing acupuncture to the West, uh, specifically for drug and alcohol detox. And so even when I graduated, I already had this sort of awakening that there's more to the mind and the body than what they were teaching us in the traditional system. So when my mother and I opened the center together, we had acupuncture, we had behavior modification, we had psychiatry and psychology, as well as a holistic spa. So it was during those first couple of years that I realized we needed to integrate all of this together, lifestyle management, stress management, dealing with our past programming, as well as, of course, taking care of the physical body as it stands, nutrition and fitness and sleep and hydration. And it was during that time that I could appreciate that when you're in a real emergency situation, Western medicine or allopathic medicine is great. There are some exactly. wonderful yeah. benefits. You probably wouldn't use homeopathy if you're in a car crash. You know, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are. But I mean, it's, it's big stuff, right? For, for the emotional stuff and for, you know, you need, you know, you don't need a sledgehammer, you know? Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of things that we can actually prevent and treat ourselves. Like the human body is amazing at self-healing. We each have an innate vitality code that will put the body into a healing and recovery phase if we stop blocking it. And, and so that's, that's all of that sort of background and then having practical experience with my patients is what led me to realize we have to live with this more holistic approach. Mm, mm. And I mean, you've spoken about having trauma. I mean, everyone's got trauma in their upbringing, right? Regardless of how, you know, I mean, your, your parents sound well, you know, well-wishing and, and great, you know, like, but you know, inevitably, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Inevitably, you know, like one inherits trauma regardless. And um, what, you know, how have you, how have you related to that? I mean, you're working with trauma a great deal now, uh, childhood trauma. And, and what's the, you know, what's the, what are the biggest tools that you can say that will help people advance, you know, help people break out of these, these patterns, you know, because I mean, I, you know, I was at university, you know, fell into this, the same kind of depression, you know, as a very high achiever, you know, I'd always got, you know, I'd been given a place at Oxbridge, you know, and, um, you know, and I didn't, um, I couldn't cope anymore, you know, and so they put me in the talking therapy, they put me in the antidepressants and uh, it, nothing changed, nothing changed really. I was very good at talking my way out of things, you know, um, until I found yoga and, and you know, and it was that, that, that made the difference. So I'm wondering, you know, what your real shift has been through this, through working through your own traumas. Wow, that's great. That's I'm happy that you found yoga. Yeah, it was, right? it was bloody um, lucky, actually. <laughs> it wasn't going well before that <laughs> with with antidepressants to the alcohol or the drugs. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a pretty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get yeah. that. I get that on so yeah. many levels. Well, yes, we all live with with trauma. You know, big T trauma, as in physical or sexual abuse, or, or witnessing something really devastating, to the the minor everyday traumas. Um, what I didn't realize is how much my family background impacted me. So yes, my parents were indeed very well-wishing and well-intentioned, but each of them brought to their, their marriage a lot of baggage and emotional wounding. Um, my mother lost my grandmother uh, when my mom was just 11 years old. She never fully healed from that wound. She was also rejected by her father. My father was 
the child of an alcoholic and nobody talked about it. And all of those sort of traumatic experiences were transmitted to their children. And that my parents got divorced when I was three. And I never thought that that was a big deal because I saw so many other families in our neighborhood where the parents were divorced. But what I now know is based on the research done with the ACEs study, the adverse childhood experiences, if you happen to grow up in a family where before the age of 18, there was a physical or sexual abuse, there was poverty, if there was a divorce or loss of a parent, perhaps due to death or to suicide, and a whole host of things, that all of those, even though they may seem like trivial traumas, they impact our brain, our nervous system, our cardiovascular system, and our immune system. And so it was as I was hearing my patients, they, we had some of the same symptoms. I felt the same sense of depression and not enoughness and, and unsatisfactoriness, but I didn't have the major traumas that they did. But when I really started to uncover, like we all had this profound feeling that we were not good enough and that we were unlovable. And, and it, it was that that really led me to do my own work. And so when you ask, you know, what, do, what does anyone do who has any sort of trauma, big or small, we always start with self-awareness, like really looking at your family history from what might have genetically been passed on, but also the environment that you grew up in. Did you have loving and responsive parents? And if not, how has that impacted you? You know, were there any attachment wounds with your primary caregivers? Because all of those set us up for compensating behaviors, perfectionism, overachiever, you know, all of that sort of people pleaser, like all of those behavioral reactions come from our early life experiences. And if we don't look at them, you know, self-awareness is about just looking at what is so, not blaming yourself or your parents. I mean, I don't blame them. I understand where they went wrong and why, and I have immense compassion, but I had to understand it for myself so that I could finally put it in its correct context so that I wasn't any longer being a victim or always being this compulsive people pleaser. I had to get out of that codependent dance by just sitting with what was so and learning to accept, okay, that was then, this is now, I'm the conscious chooser of my life experience going forward. So that, that's been the biggest shift for me because what I noticed in my medical practice was if people did not love themselves, if they did not believe that they were worthy of health and vitality, it doesn't matter what I do for you. It doesn't matter what drug, what treatment, what psychotherapy, like you and I, we did the talk therapy, we did the antidepressants. If you don't get to that fundamental root, then everything you throw at them will not work or it will not stick. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really, really, really interesting stuff. I've got so many things to ask you, but I suppose um, um, the obvious thing is you talk of this, uh, again, we go back to the schism between the arts and the creativity, and you're very much into, uh, from looking at what you put out there, the creative purpose, right? Finding your creative purpose. And, uh, you know, many times I've heard you talk about this this point in time when you were, you know, you were in France, you were in Cannes, where you are now, and you went on the stage and, and, you know, you were very depressed, I think at the time and and you happen to have a great night singing singing and expressing yourself and i've heard you sing and it's fucking amazing actually and um you know and then you you know and, and i understand this sentiment that happens next as well and then after having that time 
you go back and you know you've got to go home and it just all comes crowding in because you've had such a, you know, in polarity to that to that great time you had, you know, you kind of feel like you've, you, you can't cope anymore with your life. And, and, um, and, you also, I mean, and, you, and you were doing incredible stuff. I mean, you and Oprah Winfrey, you know, you were, you know, I mean, just just a very high achieving life. And, uh, but you were saying you, you're finding it hard to get up in the morning and put a face on, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's such a cliche, Yeah, but it's very true. I many. had been at mm, the, pinnacle, mm. the pinnacle of success and it was meaningless. It was empty and I felt miserable inside. But it's exactly what you described, that polarity between being on stage. And it wasn't just that I had a great time. Adam, it was I felt for the first time in years, I felt like my true self. And I felt accepted and seen as my true self because here I am, I'm singing to a bunch of party goers that I don't know, I know I'll never see them again, but there was this sense of cohesion, this sense of bliss and acceptance. And they didn't know me, they didn't read my bio, they had no clue who I was. And yet I felt more seen and accepted than I'd felt in years. And more seen and accepted than I felt in America, even though I was on TV every single day. And so it was that polarity getting back to my hotel room going like, what the? like. I got to go back, back into this prison. And that's when I lost it. That's when I really threw my hands up and said, God, you know, I can't do this. You're going to have to take my life. Hmm. Yeah. And an incredible moment because if you read, I think, you know, and because I've been there as well. And I think if you really say that and you really, you've come into that point of, utter not knowing and kind of just you know despair but not in despair in, in, in a, in necessarily in a kind of active suicidal way but just like I don't know anymore you know and and from there from, there's that you know there's that creativity that, that you know everything seemed to change for me from that point yeah it, it did um, because as I flung myself on the bed crying out to God to take my life I did not have any plans of suicide, but I did want my life to end. I had already made an agreement with life that I wouldn't take my own life. So I, I asked God to do it, like, take it. I don't know what I'm doing with it. And when I left my body and went into this bright white light and then over to the other side, I had this, this near-death experience that so many people describe of seeing my life reviewed in just a millisecond. And then coming to understand that we are all little droplets of God consciousness, little droplets of light or the soul essence. And when we incarnate, it's up to us to determine who we will be. And when I got that awareness, it was like, it, it seems so obvious, like, oh, duh, I can choose my life. But it, it, wa it wasn't very clear to me back then. I had had my life steered by my parents and then the school system and then the medical society and then the media. But in that moment of surrender, when my ego was completely out of the way, my soul was like, okay, if I can go back and choose, I'll go and choose differently. And that's when I saw a whole vision for my future. I saw in just full technicolor, I saw a vision of me walking hand in hand with a child, which was weird because I was almost 35 and single. Right. I'm like, okay, I have a child in this vision. <laughs> And in this future vision, I was singing professionally and healing with my hands. Now, the last part was a little weird because I'm like, wait, God, you're going to make me a woo-woo doctor now? <laughs> you know, I had been so prided on my, my scientific background. 
But it looked so amazing that I was like, you know what? I'll take that life. And I instantly came back into my body. And that dark cloud of depression was gone. And that's when I made this commitment to live with my truth. And a couple of months later, I had met and fallen in love with the father of my child. And a couple of years after that, my daughter and I moved here to the south of France, where we've now lived for 11 oh, years. Oh, that long. I didn't know you'd been around. Right, okay. Right. Wow. That's incredible. And just from that moment, everything shifted. Absolutely. Everything from that moment. And, and of course, when I became pregnant that year, I, it was even more solidified. It was like, I am not going to live an inauthentic life because I know that children model what we do, not what we say, it's what we do. And I was committed to live an authentic life. So I shifted the way I I did my work. I ended up closing the wellness center so that I could be a full-time mom for the first few years and really just be present with my daughter. And from that day forward, it's changed everything. It's changed the way I work, the types of clients I take on, and and obviously the kind of work that I Mm, do. mm. How do people find or have find the courage, first of all, to to even consider looking for their purpose, right? I mean, it seems like many people are probably going to reflect, well, that's a nice idea, right? That's a privilege that, you know, I don't have the possibility of even debating with myself, right? You know, to find my true purpose is like, I've got responsibilities, I've got bills to pay. I don't know what the hell I'm to do, you know, like I'm just working this job because I got to, you know, like... Where do we go from here? And, how, and does, everyone have, does everyone, do you think everyone has a purpose? And, and, and how do we start to intuit that purpose? And how do we begin to have the courage to do so? I believe all of us, all, all beings come here with a purpose. And not all of them have to be big and lofty, running your own company or whatever. But we each have a purpose, whether that is really to be fully present as a parent, you know, for a few years of my life. That was my sole purpose. Over time, my purpose has evolved to where I am now, leading other luminaries and coaches into the media and, and such. I think there are two, two pieces of your question that I want to get to. Number one, in my, in my case, it wasn't courageous. A lot of people say that like, oh my God, you were so courageous. You left the practice of medicine. You left media. You left America, took your child. For me, it wasn't bravery. That was an absolute must to live in alignment with my soul. And the reason I say that is because I think for people who feel like maybe finding your purpose is a luxury, there will likely come a point in your life where something shifts. Either you see somebody else die or you see somebody else rocking their purpose and you see them like living. You're like, wait a minute. We each come to a moment where it's like the hero's journey. We, we get this calling, this calling to level up. And for me, that's what it was. Yeah. I had no other choice. Yeah. I already didn't want to live my life. Yeah. For me, I had no other mm. choice. Yes. I mean, I, yeah, I said that in, I suppose, in, inauthentically in a way, because that's exactly, that's exactly how I've, I, I came to experience what I'm doing. You know, it's just, just, there comes to a point where there's like, there's no other option, you know, like, so it's not courage, and people, you know, because people have said the same thing. It's not. It's just that that is, you know, unfortunately, that is not usually framed in the positive that you see, you know, like everything is going fine. You see something else like, oh, that's even better. Like, you know, it's usually like, well, really, there's no other way out is this or, or, or just darkness, you know, like. And I was going to ask before, actually, 
from the point of the of the catharsis and the uh, the new beginning on the bed in in was that the 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 first point when the depression finally shifted because you'd you'd kind of carried you'd carried that along with you as i understand since the med school you know and your professional career in in different incarnations of that and and it wasn't shifting um exactly yeah the depression for me actually started in childhood um it was never fully labeled as such but now that i know what i know i can see that there was this deep sadness from my childhood all the way into my early 30s but after that moment in 2005 the depression never returned like that i did have some baby blues or postnatal depression um that that impacted me but nothing like what i went through before where i didn't want my life and and i can say that you know that's that's now 16 years that i've been able to live not on antidepressants not waking up dreading my life like that's really significant yeah. for me absolutely i said it's a result and what about i mean and the part of my question it was a qualified i think in three parts wasn't it so the other part of the question is how do we come into start intuiting or you know even considering what our purpose might be other than what's right in front of us that we have to do because day in day out it's like you've got a certain task you have to do there's no it doesn't doesn't feel like there's much space you know even for me you know like coming into new territory oftentimes it's like you've got these things in your day and you you don't really have that a space to dream as it were or yeah or even trust those little intuitions necessarily yeah there are four things on my list (laughs) the first one would be breath work Second would be meditation. Third would be yoga. And the fourth is journaling. Combine all of them and you've got like a super powered way to learn how to really go within to start to hear your authentic self, the voice of your soul. Um, like breath work is just a beautiful mindful practice that is any beginner can do. And of course, you know this as an expert, like just focusing on the breath can bring us into this present moment and start to quiet down the chatter in our monkey mind enough that we might start to hear or intuit or feel something. And again, you may not know how to define it and you may judge it as crazy. I I will say for me, when I started to feel like I wanted to get back on TV and back on stage, I was already living here in the South of France. And one morning I was sitting in meditation and I just felt this kind of rumbling, this kind of All I could say is it was a feeling. It was a calling to get back on TV. And at first, I went into judgment. I was like, oh, you just miss being a big star on TV, huh? And as I went back and I sat with my breath on my meditation cushion, it was like, no, this is not my ego speaking. This is my heart because I love performing and teaching and expressing. And that was when I realized, okay, this is a part of me. This is divine. I didn't feel like it was coming from my ego. So I find that, you know, doing these things and and certainly doing, I mean, you could also do just connecting in nature, gardening, being out with, you know, the, the elements, but being on a yoga mat is a beautiful way to really hear that inner voice, that inner calling. And, you know, we've helped so many amazing yogis like share their message with the world. And I'm always inspired when I hear about the transformation that happens. It's not just while being on the mat 
obviously being on the yoga mat is where you do the training, but it's the revelations that you hear about what that meant in the rest of their lives. And, and so those are the four things that I would recommend if you really wanted to start to hear and trust your own gut and heart, your soul, to find that intuitive nudge toward your purpose. Those are the mm, four things mm. I'd recommend. It's funny because I picked up a pen after years. I mean, I was an academic, uh, you know, kind of pathway before I found yoga. There were, you know, and as I said, it kind of wasn't going well at university. And so I, I kind of stopped writing and reading. And then more latterly, I picked up the pen and I started writing in could call it journaling or you know and yeah it's been it's been incredible actually equally equally as powerful as the yoga i mean really so i do i totally recommend to anyone you know do a bit of creative writing whatever it is and it just starts to kind of bring stuff out right you know yeah it's yeah. that has inspired me to to write books i think we've written and published 13 books since i moved to france um so it just it just flows. Mm, mm. What about the um, you talk about neurofeedback? Um, do, do you want to talk about that? As I understand it, it's like putting electrodes on, in, on onto your head. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Are you still doing that? Well, it kind of sounded interesting. I am. Right, okay. I am the nerd in me cannot go away. That part is here to stay. Um, a, f- a few years ago, I read this book by C. Maxwell Cade, who is a British physicist and Zen master. And I was reading about how he was hooking up EEG sensors on the heads of yogis, mediums, other healers. And he and a partner had developed the very first kind of consumer EEG. And they could see the brainwave patterns on this electroencephalogram. And they started to recognize that certain types of meditation and breath work and visualization could get you into brainwave patterns that he and his protege um, ended up calling the awakened mind. So Anna Weiss. So Anna Weiss learned in England and then moved to America. And a few years ago when I was reading his book, I met someone who trained with Anna Weiss. And I was like, oh my God, I want to get one of these. So I went to Pennsylvania and I sat down with Judith Pennington, uh, no relation, same last name, really amazing, from the Institute for the Awakened Mind. And I got trained on doing this EEG neurofeedback. So as you said, you put these sensors on your head and then as you're listening either to a guided meditation or you could just do it on your own, the, the computer program will give you little feedback, little audio cues that let you know if you're getting into the brainwave pattern that you desire. And I found it fascinating because I've been meditating since university, but with the biofeedback training, I noticed I could get faster and more reliably into these deeper states of meditation. And recently I've been trying out the the consumer version of of the Mind Mirror, Uh, it's called Muse, and it's a little bit of a different system, not as techie, as the mind mirror, but it's it's really elegant because we can train ourselves. And even without using EEG, after a while, you just train your body and your brain to get back into that regulated nervous system state. Um, I love it because now that I bring it into my workshops around the world, we can hook people up and they can see what happens when they get into these different brainwave patterns. And uh, I just find it fascinating because what it proves, it proves that we have the power 
to transform our own health and vitality. And we can see that proof. You know, of course, we know longtime meditators and yogis, we know what their health looks like. But if you could do this and after just a couple of weeks, you could see visibly your results. Right. Well, we find that that's a huge motivator yeah. for people. Faith, I mean, you know, if you look at, I was thinking of the Yoga Sutras actually, when Matanjali actually says, you know, what you need is, you know, first of all, you need faith. You know, Shraddha is the first thing you need. Shraddha, Virya, Smithi, you need faith, you need vigor, you need effort. And then you need reflection or inquiry or awareness, right? So, you know, in faith, faith is huge, you know, because, you know, without faith or, as you say, like in, you know, kind of common parlance motivation or, you know, you can't, you, you can't continue. And what you need is consistent effort, right? You know, over a reasonable period of time, you know, which I'm, you know, I'm sure even though you had the awakening on the bed, you know, it's taking you a long time to put everything together and come to a place of solidity that you can really you know, with your hand on your heart, go out and teach people these things and, and you know, and, and, and affect change, you know, for, for, for others, which you are. What's the one, you know, can you say one thing that has been the most fundamental, fundamentally surprising thing in your work, you know, in terms of how you change, how people have or haven't changed or, you know? I would say the most surprising thing for me in my work has happened since I moved to France. And it happened after that period in meditation where I was feeling like I need to get out there. And that was in doing my first TED Talk where I opened up about my experience with depression and anxiety. And I told the whole world that I had this near-death experience. I did that for myself just to clear the slate so that as I came back into the media, we, people would have a different reference. They wouldn't keep referencing my old media image. I had no idea, and I've been completely surprised at how much that opened up my heart and the hearts of other people. So it shifted everything, including my business. Like I now have the authentic uh, personal branding bootcamp where I'm helping people tell their personal stories. I never would have dreamed <laughs> that talking about my wounds would have transformed other people's lives. It does. And my it own. does. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, like if someone had told me that, actually, somebody did tell me that. I remember somebody telling me um, my mother had Alzheimer's disease and, and passed away in September. And when things were really getting dicey, I took a little break from media. And I remember somebody in Hollywood telling me, oh, you should blog about your experience. And there was just something about it that just seemed wrong. And I know a lot of people were doing that. A lot of people share their experience. But for me personally, it felt wrong for me. It was like, no, I don't, I don't want to share what's going on with my mom and, and how I'm dealing with it. A few years in, after I had my first TED talk and it was realizing that I had opened up a whole line of communication for people that made me more accessible to them and more relatable to them. And suddenly people were saying, yeah, I'm also a high achiever, but I'm, I'm lacking in this area. And how did you do this? So it, it transformed the way that I started doing business. And that has been the, the most shocking thing ever. Really? That's uh, funny. For both reasons. Yeah. Yeah. But I think because one, it made, may help me grow a very successful coaching business. And number two, it was also healing for me because as I opened up, it allowed me to sit with other people in 12-step meetings and really go deep on my own personal journey and, and uncover hidden wounds that I had no idea were impacting my relationships, my finances, my confidence, 
all of it. It's so strange, though, because when you listen to the talk, and it's a great talk, it's clear, it's calm. In no way does it feel like you've just done that one time or, you know, or, you know you're just opening up at that very time. I mean, it, you don't seem nervous at all or any way emotive you know about it it's, it's like you've done it it's just like you've done it a hundred times it, i'm sure you were at the time right but it doesn't you know it reflecting on it like and talking to you now and looking at the talk as i did yesterday you know you would never know you would never know it's very fascinating right does 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 everyone need a creative outlet do you think i mean you've got many and you talk about creativity a lot um and many people will say i don't have you know that you know i don't have any kind of creative pastime or you know like i don't feel creative or you know do you think everyone needs it and how do we encourage that part of ourselves you know what i'm not sure i'll be honest i think i, I attract and i resonate with creative people so like all the people in my life, they have something, whether they're creative gardeners or they know how to cook amazing meals and they add a lot of creativity. I think everyone in my circle has some level of creativity. So I would feel like my gut would say, of course, because I can see it in my clients. When they tap into their creativity, everything else in their life flourishes just like it did with mine. So I, I don't know about people who don't have some creative pastime, but even just listening to music or appreciating a good film or a good book, that's tapping into that creativity. Mm. So, but I'll be honest, that's, that's my response right. there. I think, I think it's difficult because I think these days we're all encouraged that we ought to, everyone has to fulfill their purpose, their dream, their, you know, individuate themselves, right? And you be a big, you know, like make a big thing, right, you know, of themselves. And I don't, you know, and I think it's, it puts a lot of pressure, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on the individual to be something particular something special in the eyes of the world right rather than just you know be quietly their own thing and quietly resonate resonate yeah. with themselves you know um yeah but i think what you're saying is is important to highlight because even if we're just doing something that the outside world might think of as small mm. it doesn't mean it's insignificant absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. and one of the ways i was really brought home to this coming to the south of France where everything moves a little bit slower than America. I remember going to a, a boulangerie, the bakery, wanting to get you know some stuff before my daughter went to school. And so I was kind of in an American hurry. And as I saw this little yeah, guy yeah, go yeah, up yeah, to yeah. the counter <laughs> and he ordered his little cafe and his I croissant know this too and well. his baguette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at first I was irritated, but then I looked and I looked at the woman and she knew him and she recognized him and she nodded and she got him his stuff. And as he walked away, I realized he's taking that back to his wife who maybe can't get out today or doesn't want to. And that interaction has just helped him and maybe even helped his wife. And who knows that little interaction. And so are you going to tell me that the woman at the bakery wasn't living her purpose? Like, even if you were a track star or a movie star, someone still had to serve you your coffee. And if you were, you know, some surgeon, every little interaction that we have is meaningful and purposeful. And yeah, so I feel like don't worry if it doesn't seem like it's this big, huge thing that you're living. Sometimes our purpose is just to be this presence of love yeah. on the planet and to beam that to send that and out the purpose and the purpose people. can get in the way of actually living right like you're so involved in your purpose right i've got to get there here here I've got to do this you don't actually open up to life in that moment right which is 
which is always just about small connections with people, you know. But it's funny. I mean, I have that experience at the Blanchery all the time. And they just, I mean, they give great service, but it's very slow. It's, you know, and they talk, it doesn't matter if you've got 10 people behind, they'll have a little chat. And, you know, it's so different to the UK and I'm sure US where it's just like efficiency is everything. But where are you going with all that efficiency? You know, where is it exactly? Once you've got that extra time, it goes on people just watching TV or just trying to kill that time, you know? Um so yeah, it is. It is. It is very different um, here. I, mean, I don't want to even want to ask you how your French is going because I'm sure that you're, you know, you're mistaken for a native speaker by now. As I struggle with my uh, my grammar still. Um, well, I've been speaking French since I was a kid. So right, yeah, yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about lastly? What about this? You use this word resilience a lot, um, and it can't, it crops up a lot in the way you talk, and I like it. I don't fully. Uh, understand i'd like to hear more about about this word and, and what it means for you yeah sure resilience is a natural capacity that we're all born with resilience is the ability to bounce back after adversity accidents illness injury surgery and it each, each of us are born with a set of resources or skills that make us resilient um, as I mentioned before, we each have our own innate vitality code, meaning all the way into your DNA, there is a code for your body to return to homeostasis, to return to a baseline. And in my research, working with huge superstars and, and normal people, I identified 10 traits of resilience that if we focus on them, we can enhance our ability to bounce back after challenges, but even bounce forward with post-traumatic growth. Hmm. I like it because someone said once said to me, I wouldn't say you're strong, they said, but you're very resilient. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it struck with me ever since because I thought that's really true because I'm emotionally, you know, like I'm quite out there, you know, and, I, and my power, as you said, I mean, my power is uh, being emotionally open, you know, I mean, that's, it helped me incredibly, you know, and, um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that resilience is. Is something which everyone has if they can tap into it, you know, and it doesn't mean that you don't have emotional feelings or vulnerability. It's not the same thing, you see, you know, showing vulnerability uh, actually helps with resilience. You know? Absolutely. You know, one of the top 10 traits of highly resilient people, one is positive emotion. The other one is tolerance and compassion. Like the more of we, that we have, we have this greater capacity to broaden our awareness and bring more skills to challenging life situations and to problem solving. Well, Andrew, we've almost run out of time and I, I reckon I could talk to you for ages about loads of different things, but I want to ask you, okay, for, I usually ask a couple of questions at the end, but I want to ask you the next one. Who, um, out of figure, well-known figures that you might have spoken to or talked to, and I know you've uh, rubbed shoulders with the stars for many years, who, who impressed you most? Or was there a, a, a particular action or something that struck you up with someone that, you, that really inspired you or impressed you, that someone you met? Oh, gosh, there are so many to think through. I think one that comes to mind today is Beyonce. When I met her and spent some time with Jay-Z, way back when, when I still lived in Washington, D.C., she had come and performed there. And this was the same time that she was still using this alter ego, Sasha Fierce. And, and now that I do so much work with archetypes, I can really appreciate that 
having this alter ego, Sasha Fierce, when she stepped on stage, I mean, she lit up the arena. It was one of the best concerts I'd ever been to. But then when she came back to where Jay-Z and I were hanging out in the VIP, it was like she came in as this very sweet, demure, the Beyonce that we knew back then. And it really struck me the power of activating these alter egos or archetypes. And in fact, I've built a whole hero collective membership helping people tune into these, these archetypes. So that one comes to mind. That's really interesting. Kind of like Joseph Campbell kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And my classic two questions, um, give me a guilty pleasure and don't say you don't have any guilt. Something that's like a little throwaway thing that you like to do for, for fun, not for any achieving, right? Um, you know, that's the tough one. And also it's something that inspires you. It could be a place, a person, a book or something that comes to mind. So just to wrap up our, our time together. Yeah. Well, this guilty pleasure um, is actually creating little videos like not just work stuff, but I love, I love getting, I have a, an app on my phone and I just create little silly videos sometimes on TikTok, it, mostly on Instagram. Just splice them together. Like, a, 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 yeah. 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 Just yeah. so sometimes I'll have an inspiration, an idea I want to share and I'll do it. And I don't know why it's guilty, but it's my Yeah. Guilty. Yeah. Just mucking around. Yeah. It's still yeah. achieving really. That's, that's, that's not half as guilty as most people's guilty pleasure really, but it's not bad, you know, like, yeah. Um, okay. And your inspiration, something that keeps you inspired when you, when you feel a little bit, you know, low of energy or, or down, you know? Hmm. I would say the biggest inspiration for me is, is my family right now. Yeah. When I'm wondering like, okay, who cares about all the stuff I'm doing, you know, out in the world? I tune back into my daughter, my beloved, the rest of my family back in the U.S. And I realize, okay, yeah, this is my inspiration to keep going, to keep shining, to keep sharing. Mm, beautiful. All right. Well, thanks for giving your time. I've really, really enjoyed meeting you and speaking to you. Thank, Thank you, you, Andrea. Thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>